If you have your Bibles, again, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 21 as we follow up last week's sermon that Pastor Chris shared with us that took us up through verse 17. Do you ever find yourself, as you go through the week, consumed with thoughts of work, thoughts of family, thoughts of your finances, thoughts of just the week's trials and struggles, even thoughts of recreation, thoughts of sports and tourney time and all those things, to the point where there is only little passing thought to who you are in Christ, to why we're here in the first place, little little thought of the one who we are to live in reverent fear of, the one who bought you with the price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, I do. That is a daily, minute-by-minute struggle. Think about the past week. Weren't there hours, days, trials, difficulties, distractions that led you only to think of this moment? It's as though we're daydreaming through life. We're consumed with the the passing, consumed with what is here and now, but gone tomorrow. Some of it's pretty heavy stuff, pretty important stuff. Our families are important. Your work is important. Those trials are difficult and they're real. They're not imagined. They do grieve us. But there, there are realities that need to wake us up. I don't know if you've ever driven long distances I promise I don't think this ever happened while I had your kids in the van with me. But I remember driving to college from Waverly, Kansas to Greenville, South Carolina. And that's about 18 hours. And, you know, like any good guy, it's a race, right? Fewer the stops, the better. The shorter the time, the better, right? And I remember, in, I would often leave at like 8 o'clock at night or so, so I'd get there during the middle part of the next day, and driving through the night in places like Illinois and eastern Kentucky, or western Kentucky and then Tennessee, and I would wake up. There's no other word for it. I would wake up and go, oh no, where am I? And I would, that was before GPS, so I couldn't just look and say, oh, I'm right here. You literally had to start looking for exits so that you could see where exactly am I? Have I missed my exit? I needed to wake up. And, buddy, for moments, you'd be wide awake, and then you're back to, to struggling, back to sleep. That's a lot how I feel like life can be. It's like, go, 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 go. And we're consumed with, with our little dreams that are here in front of us. And we don't see the big picture. We don't see what came before us and we don't see what lies ahead of us. And this morning, I think the opening words of verse 18 are a wake up. Wake up. Hey, you know this. You know something. And it's this something that should transform your thinking, that should make you gird up the loins of your mind, as we heard last week, that should cause you to live sober-mindedly, that should cause you to live in light of your Father, the impartial judge who sees all, is over all. 
and we find today is intimately involved in your redemption. Know this. You know this. Verse 18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. That's a wake-up call. You know this. Wake up. You've been, you have been divinely redeemed from that life of futility. A life of worthlessness. When we use that word redeem today, normally we think of redeeming ourselves. In other words, guys, it's like this. You forget to take out the trash, so you help with the dishes. You've redeemed yourself, right? Okay, you were in trouble before, but now you're not because you helped with dishes. You did something that maybe you don't normally do. And then, not on top of that, you put really nice lines in the lawn, right? So you've really redeemed, your, at least in your own mind, you have. In the Old Testament, God spoke of redeeming his people from the yoke of slavery in Egypt. In the ancient world, a slave could be redeemed. He could, his freedom could be purchased either by funds that he had accumulated as a slave. And yes, they had ways in which to do that. But more often than not, by someone else who would step in and pay the price of his redemption. And he would be set free from his life as a slave. Paul spoke of this redemption in, in his writings. He says that Jesus Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, through Christ, believers have been redeemed. They have been bought from something and they have been bought for something else, right? You've been freed from a life of sin, a futile life of sin, a life that is without fruitfulness, without real purpose, without real value. You've been redeemed from that to a fruitful and faithful life that God has declared good. Uh, good works is what, how we read that in Ephesians 2.10, in Titus, throughout the book of Titus. That's the picture that we have. And the question is this, is there anything more hopeless than futile? I mean, it's worthless. It's empty. It is, the, the definition says that it is in the it is incapable of producing any useful result, pointless. For some of you, think Algebra 2. Alright? It was, in your mind, why am I doing this? It is pointless. It is fruitful, fruitless. I tell you, if you're a math teacher, I have to apologize right now. I'm sorry. I didn't, didn't mean to offend you. But you can think of things you've done in life that you saw no value for. And then, in fact, though, it's not saying you didn't think there was value. As a matter of fact, I would argue that we think there is value in our futile way of living. That's kind of the point. We were enslaved to that which we thought was of great value. That which would bring about great benefit. And yet, we are redeemed from that. Each of our lives before Christ were pointless. They were incapable of producing any useful result. That's harsh. But here's how Ephesians 2 says it. Verses 1 through 3, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked. That's a pretty 
fruitless way to walk when you were dead, right? Pretty hard for dead people to have benefit, to have some point to it. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. For the Jews, this was living by tradition. Jesus challenged them in that because they thought that they were living according to the word, missing the point, missing the point of loving God, of keeping God's commands out of love and worship for God. They did it in order to attain some spiritual standing before God, and ended up ultimately in just religious pride. It was futile. It was empty. It was worthless. It did not accomplish what they thought they were deceived into believing that it would produce. But he's also talking to people who were idol worshipers, people who just really, truly graven images, would worship them, thinking that there would be an outcome that would be favorable to their lives. Maybe their business would prosper. Maybe they would have children. Maybe they, there's just whatever they wanted. They would go to their idol, hoping that it would give them what they were hoping for. It was pointless. It was futile. And the fact of the matter is, for, for, the, for the believer, we've been rescued from a life of idolatry. A life of chasing dead hope. Of chasing the things that we hope will give us either an eternity or success or a happy family or just peace on earth, right? We chase those things thinking they will give to us what we are hoping for. But we've been saved from putting our hope in those traditions and those practices. Instead, we've been saved to a living, productive, eternal hope. That's the hope. Regardless of whether, and here's what Jerry Bridges says, regardless of whether it was a decent life or a wicked life judged on a human scale of morality, it was a vain, futile, and empty life. The point of all that is we don't see it when we're in it. That's the point. And that's the wake-up call for the the one who is lost in that. And it's also a wake-up call for the believer who's tempted to go back to that. It's a wake-up call to say, wait a minute. You've been redeemed from that. And not just with cheap stuff like gold and silver, but with something far greater. His point is this, you're not just being bought out of being a slave in this life to being something else in this life, which could frankly free you from being a slave here to be enslaved by something else. I mean, right, we all want to escape a job. Some of us want to escape a job, but we find ourselves in another job that's no more of a release than what the first one was. And that's the experience of life, right? We're chasing this and we're chasing that. And God says, no, your hope is not in that. Your hope is not in this stuff that you see and feel and taste and touch around you. It is in Christ alone. Our sin nature was inherited from our parents and from our father's fathers. And that's the point that that Paul makes here. It's a futile way of living that was inherited from your forefathers. We all have our sinful nature all the way back to Adam. 
But the second Adam, the, the last Adam, not just second Adam, the last Adam, there's only two. There's the first one and the last one, right? And the, the last Adam redeemed us, paying the ransom for our relief, release from that slavery to sin. And now we live as children of God. We're, we're freed to something else. And we call on Him as Father, verse 17 says. And we have an inheritance with that Father that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for us. He said in, in chap, early chapter 1. We're redeemed from the path of destruction to the pathway of life eternal. From a life without hope, whether we knew it or not, to a life with hope. And Peter wants us wide awake, living fully aware of what God has done in redeeming us. What He's redeemed us from And next, the price of that redemption, what he freed us with, because there is a price for redemption. There is a precious price. And we're coming up on the resurrection celebration, right? We call it Easter here. And and that celebration is this. It is a it is a memorial every year where we come back to it and celebrate in in a special way that redemption that was purchased for us. On that day. And that purchase price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You've been set free. You've been set free not only from a futile way of living, but you've been set free with a most precious price. First Peter 1.13 or 118b and 19 says, and with, and with, you've not been redeemed with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that, of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul told Timothy in regard to this redemption in 1 Timothy 1, two, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This should tell you something of what has been purchased for you. God knew what He was purchasing for you. He was purchasing for you, not only you out of something, but He purchased you for relationship with the infinite Creator God. There's a value in that, right? There is there is an eternal value that we can't put a price on, except God did. The price He put on it was the price of His Son's life. And it is a gift to all who believe, but it wasn't a free gift. It's only free to us. It costs somebody something. It costs Christ his life. It's all too easy for us to take for granted the extraordinary nature of our salvation. Especially, you know, if you grew up in the church, you may not appreciate it as you you should. Because you don't see it in the fullness of what you were saved from. You may just sort of grow used to it. Even if you're saved at an older age, it can become that. Where you become, yeah, he did that. I agree with that. That's good. I'll give my hour and a half on Sunday morning to come and celebrate that fact. But it's this great cost that brings about our opportunity 
for eternal joy and benefit for us. And it contrasts dramatically with those perishable things that we were once preoccupied with. Those that live according to the world standards and for the world's currencies of hope. You see, the currency of the world is not our currency. It's not what we're putting our hope in. We have retirement funds. We have now cryptocurrencies. We've got all these different currencies of the world that can deliver a degree of hope. They can deliver a degree of satisfaction and pleasure, but none of it lasting, right? And the cost of it all seems to be going up exponentially right now. But we've been ransomed from the limited scope of a dying and futile hope to a, with a precious blood of Jesus Christ. It speaks of first Christ's life. It was the fulfillment of what he said in Matthew 20, 28, when he said, I, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, obviously, you know that the reference here to the, the lamb without spot or blemish, if I shouldn't say you know, but if, but if you have an understanding of, of Old Testament history, you know that this is a reference back to many of the sacrifices that were asked of God's people, right? The, the Jews were, were to offer up these lambs without spot or blemish. You couldn't just go get the runt out of the litter. You couldn't go get the one that, uh, he ain't worth a whole lot. Let's use that one. You know, the others, those are, there's some good lamb shank on those other guys. Let's get the runt and use him. No, they were to be without spot or blemish. They were to be the best. It could even be that Peter had in mind Exodus 12:5, the Passover lamb that was offered up and then the blood from that lamb was then painted around the doorpost of the, the Israelites in Egypt and the, the angel of death would pass over that home and those that dwelled within that home would live. You see, that may have been the picture in his mind, that that was the precious blood as though Christ himself was that lamb who was slain and his blood was the covering over his people. Clearly, it speaks, this without spot or blemish, speaks of his righteousness, his sinlessness, his sinless life that not only made him the one and only perfect sacrifice for all who would believe, but it also provided For the law to be satisfied. You see, the law was God's standard. Was God saying, you know what? You need to keep this perfectly. You need to be holy as I am holy. And yet none throughout all of history, save one, Jesus Christ himself did that. But the law was satisfied by his righteousness. He was the spotless lamb. Not only, as we'll talk about in a moment, that could be slain, but his life, his life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. He didn't, he, he, he had no intimacy with sin. He did not know it. He did not experience it. He did not do it. Right? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. If you've trusted in Christ as Savior, you've not only been bought with the death of Christ, you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. His, this spotless Lamb of God is the one who lived out the law perfectly on your behalf, in your place. And when you trust in Him, you're trusting in His righteousness. Saying, yes, Lord, that, that's, I want that. 
But it's not all. There was a penalty for our sin. God is holy and He is just. And as a just God, sin must be punished. Because if you don't punish all sin, then how is it just that they get to do this sin, but you can't do that sin? It would be unjust of God not to punish all sin, right? We like to think more like that, though. Well, my sin's not as bad as someone else's. Yeah, man, I, God just ought to strike all those sinners down. Which ones? If He did, all of us would perish, right? All of us would perish. And yet, in our place, as John 3.16 makes very clear, God gave His one and only Son that whosoever believeth in Him will not perish. There are those who will not perish. Well, the who? Who will not perish? Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish. You see, the curse satisfied was satisfied by His sacrifice. His life, our righteousness. His death was our curse. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. No one knew your need, knew my need, like Jesus. And no one met our need like Jesus. No one knew it, and no one could do it. And He did it. And friend, that same Lord, that same Lord who gave His life to meet that deepest of needs, knows your needs today. That same Lord who met your your greatest need of all, your sin need, your righteousness need, that same one today stands ready and able as your Redeemer who bought you at the most precious price that could be paid. He stands ready. He is the living water. He is the bread of life, providing all you need both for now and for eternity. He's given us His Word. He's given us His Spirit. He's given us His body, right, to care for us. And I don't know where you're at today. I know where some of you are at. We've had conversations today. Some of us are struggling deeply with stuff. Life is very, very clouded because of the burden that you carry. Life is very, very difficult because of the struggles that you're going through right now. Friend, the infinite one, the one who gave his life to redeem you, knows your need. And he cares for your need. Why would he care for that great need and not care for you? And friend, you need to trust him even in those things. Rest in him in those things, just as you rest in him in the eternal salvation of your soul. You know, children sometimes don't understand the value of a gift, right? You give them these very beautiful, amazing gifts at Christmas or on their birthday, and they just pass over that precious gift for some worthless toy that that catches their fancy. They are consumed with it, right? They don't know price. They don't know value. I mean, for our kids at times, we would I would go get a, a box. Scott would, our facilities manager here, would uh, would have some appliance or something get delivered, and there'd be this big box, and we'd take it home, and they'd decorate it, and they'd play in it, and the value of that box was nothing. I mean, it was recycling material, right? But that gave them greater pleasure often than the the, the expensive toys that we'd come up with. Sometimes. While that's innocent and cute in children, 
It's not cute and innocent in a child of God in relation to our redemption. And Paul said, Peter says here, wake up. You know this. This is the truth in the midst of, of what you, the church spread abroad, is facing and are going to go through. Don't lose sight of this. You were redeemed from a futile way of living. You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of that. Hang on to that. It's a precious thing. Shouldn't, shouldn't we continually delight in the one who redeemed us at such great price? Shouldn't we live continually in joyful thanksgiving in light of the price that he paid for each of us? Here's something else that's pretty beautiful. You see this in the next, next verse as we come up. This wasn't an afterthought. Jesus' death was no plan B after everything else failed. The plan of redemption has been part of what God has been doing since before creation. You see, we are the beneficiaries of God's most loving plan. Verse 20 says this, He, Jesus, remember the spotless Lamb of God, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. You know, an impulsive act can be a very loving thing, right? In just a moment, you've seen, you may even see it on social media, when someone just stops and does something incredibly tender and kind and compassionate for someone else just in a moment. It may not be great cost to them. It might. But often it's just a moment, it's just attention, it's care and concern. And those are precious things, and they're wonderful things. We don't make light of them. A husband and wife, those tender moments of just a, 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 something that may not even be seen. It's just done in a moment, it's wonderful. But when something of great cost to the one who is giving is planned out, knowing it's going to be painful and difficult and hard and you follow through with it for the sake of the beloved, that is remarkable. Especially when that plan is one that cost you your life. John fifteen thirteen says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You see, the greatest the greatest acts of love are those which are premeditated and planned at great cost and sacrifice of the giver for the sake of the beloved. And they are the deepest expression of love that one might give. And then you take that and you say it's the eternal God who does that, that God gave his life. You know, it wasn't Stephen Schultz. There's Stephen Schultz's are a dime a dozen. You can even look up, you can Google Stephen Schultz, and there's a lot of Stephen Schultz's out there. Believe it or not. Right? But there's one God. There's one eternal God. And that one eternal God ordained that His Son, Jesus Christ, would one day give His life as a ransom for you and for me. That is an act of love. And you've got to back up from it and just not read the, the, the Bible speak for a moment, but think of the act that was done. And to think of the planning and the preparation and bringing all this to pass 
And you say, well, but that's for God's glory. Oh, it is, but what does Scripture say right here? It was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now, He gets the glory for that, for sure, but you get the benefit. It was God fulfilling His plan. It's like, it's like you, you guys trying to plan the amazing anniversary to the place you don't really want to go, but you'll go there because of, you, know, you know your wife loves it. You go to Cake Bake. Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you a secret about Cake Bake, guys. It's just a, this isn't in the sermon notes. You want to go there. All right. Don't let the frilly white and all this stuff scare you off. You want to go there because the pieces of cake are huge and they are delicious. Right. OK, so that's just that's free. You can talk to me more later on. But you plan it out and, and maybe it isn't exactly the plan that you would have, but you give some sacrifice. God did so much more than that. God did so much more than that. And he's been planning it since before the foundation of the world. The Greek says that he was foreknown. But this means that Christ's coming to earth was foreordained with the definite intention of bringing salvation through his sacrifice. Consider what love was woven through every aspect of that plan. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That was part of the plan, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Consider the implications of such love for our lives and our future. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give him, give us all things? And there was a perfect timing, and that perfect timing was in these last days. When Peter speaks in, in verse 20 of last times, he speaks of the time since the most pivotal point in all of human history. The revealing of Christ in His birth, His death, His resurrection and exaltation as a turning point in history, as a crucial stage in world history. Christ's coming triggered the most significant point, this last period in human history. The period now in which his people wait for the inheritance that is to be theirs. That is theirs. It's waiting for them. Kept for them. Or as Peter has said elsewhere, this final salvation that we are looking forward to. It was the right right price. It was the right plan. All at the right time. And all for his gracious purpose. And he did it for your sake. I love this verse. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, 7, and how he, he phrases this, Paul phrases this about that idea of it being for our sake. So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. You, see, you ever think about that? That he created us and in his plan... Part of his plan was that these sinful people would be shown grace and kindness in incredible, unmeasurable ways. And that was so that he might show it off. How else was he going to show kindness without a bunch of sinners? How else was he going to show such grace in such a magnificent way than to save us, die for us while we were yet enemies of his? 
This is like saying against this horrible backdrop of sin, look at what I've done through the giving of my son's life, through the redemption of these people lost in their futile ways, I get to show what a glorious and gracious and kind and loving God that I truly am. And if that God is for us, who can stand against us? Who can stand against us in the middle of the trial of this past week? Who can stand against us when we face the the monotony of life? Who can stand against us when we struggle with the temptations that we each face every week? We need to wake up and remember that we know that we've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ from futility and into his marvelous, wonderful, immeasurable grace and kindness. That's where you stand right now. It doesn't feel like it, maybe. But it's what we know. It's what is true. And that's what we stand on. That's what we sing about, right? That's what we stand upon. We're reminded that that living for the Father is the least that we can do by way of response to this great plan. As we think of verse 17 when he said, let's live in fear. Let's live in reverence. Reverential fear of this one who has redeemed you from the futile ways of our fathers to a faith and hope that rests in the eternal God who planned, paid, and ransomed us to a certain hope. All these truths are the foundation and means of your faith. Your hope is provided at the expense of Christ. God planned our salvation. He presented Christ as an atonement for our sins. And then by his power, we read that he raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that he glorified the son, confirming this finished work. We have a living Lord in whom we hope, a risen savior in whom we trust. Verse 21 says this, who through him, who, who are these, who are these that he says are through him? He, it is, verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world that was, uh, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. You, who through him are believers in God. God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your hope and faith are in God. Question for you. Are you among the you? Are you among the you who believe? Is, does that describe you? Are, is what we've described them this morning in terms of the redemption of Christ, your faith placed in the righteous life and the sacrificial death of Jesus, is that you? Have you by faith trusted in Christ as your Redeemer? If not, friend, you are still bound in sin. You're still facing the curse. And that curse is eternal death. And unless you confuse that and think, well, I'm fine with that. I just, I'll get put in a coffin and I'll just lie there in peace and quiet for all eternity. No. Scripture tells us that they're cast into outer darkness in a place called hell. A place of torment. Place of aloneness, a place where there's not even water to quench your tongue. Friend, we come to you as ambassadors for Christ. 
be reconciled to God. He paid the price for you to be reconciled. Trust in Him today. The great love of God bids you come. Come to Him and be saved. Young person, there's no reason to delay. There's no reason to wait. All the stuff of this life that clouds your mind, it is just a distraction. It is all part of a, that can be used to deceive you to thinking that it'll all turn out fine in the end. But friend, the only way it all turns out right in the end is if you are among the you who believe in God. And you can. You can because of what He has done. If He hadn't done it, what would there to believe in? Right? But because He has, you as a believer have a most certain faith and a definite hope. I love what Chuck Swindoll says about this passage here. And I think it really summarizes it very, very well. God knew our total emptiness. That we were helpless to work or buy ourselves out of sin slave market. So even before the foundation of the world, he had a plan ready to be implemented for our sakes. That plan meant that his eternal divine son would set aside his celestial comforts and privileges to take on full humanity and voluntarily take on the cross himself on our behalf so that our faith and our hope can rest in God. There is no other solid ground of hope in hurtful times than the fact that Christ himself took it all on and rose victorious, ready to lead us to victory with him. That's the picture. Is Our Redeemer didn't just redeem us, he leads us. He is our hope and our confidence. We're putting all of our eggs in our Redeemer's basket. There's nowhere else that we are looking to. Your faith and your hope are secure because it's in the living Lord. Your faith and hope are in Jesus who has, as we read in this passage, conquered sin and death by raised, being raised from the dead. And our, we believe in the eternal God, the same God who rules over all and exalted Jesus, who gave him, this passage says, gave him glory. And because he is in that place, he rules and reigns over all. So who exactly is going to overcome him? Who exactly is going to dethrone him? And set this one who loved you and gave himself for you at such great price to shake up your future. Your future in him is secure. Your hope and your faith are definite and certain, even though it doesn't feel like that. And because I know of nothing that I can say to convince you of that, I want to give you some powerful scriptures this morning to read with me and to think on. You read them silently while I read them out loud and think on these incredible promises of this God who wants you to be certain, to be confident, to be definite in your faith and hope. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. John 10, 28 through 31, you may be familiar with. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. And just to double down, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. Who's going to dethrone him? No one. 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You're in the Son's hand, you're in the Father's hand, you're in secure ground if your faith and hope are in Him. Friend, I pray that you know the assurance that comes from these roots that are fixed down in God. Roots of faith that have a yield, that yield a living hope. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Man, put those roots of faith deeply down in the truth of, of God and His Word. Rest in that and it will bear fruit in those seasons of drought when you feel like you've got nothing else to give. That's okay. He does. He does. Are you still trying to set your roots in the stuff of this world? It is futile. It is pointless. There's nothing there. There's no life only enough pleasure and fulfillment to deceive you into thinking it's all okay and lull you to sleep and then to perish. It's pointless. Wake up, friend. Wake up to the hope of Christ. Wake up and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, wake up to the fact that you have a faith that you are standing on that is sure. And then remember Isaiah 50, 7 through 9, or just verse 7, let's look at. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. That is the confident hope of the one who rests in the Redeemer who purchased you at great price and bought you for hope. And salvation in himself. Because your faith and hope are in God. And hope are in God. You don't have to waffle on whether or not to live in obedience to, to the Father. Right? We can live in reverential fear. Knowing, you know what? He's, he's not just anyone. He's my Father. He's my Father who bought me at great price. And because your faith and hope are in God. You're not to expend your time and energy. Living like the rest of the world. Giving out your life and energy to the futile way of living of the world. He bought you from that. And as we close, just to think on this intimate knowledge that he says, you know, you know, wake up, people who went to the all-nighter. No, wake up, believer. Wake up, believer. You know this. It's, what you, it's why you came to Jesus in the first place. But a growing intimate knowledge of this redemption will transform you. An intimate knowledge of redemption produces a worshipful delight in our Redeemer which turns us from the futile ways of the world. It is that adoration that turns us. It's not just a just say no to drugs. It's a here's the way of the world and here's my beloved Savior who gave himself at such great cost, who loved me while I was yet an enemy and gave himself for me, who planned that from before the foundation of the world. It is that that then should say, Lord, why do I keep going back to the well of futility? Why do I keep putting my hope 
in my peace, my comfort, my success, all this stuff. When he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Rest in him. Rest in him today. He gets the glory for that. And we get him. Let's pray. Gracious Father. Lord, I pray that we would rest in these truths. The truths that we so easily and so often forget. They get clouded out by the stuff of life. And they will in just moments. Maybe even already. Our minds are turning towards the stuff that is to come. Lord, in the midst of life, remind us through the work of your spirit, through the precious promises of your word, of who you are, what you've done, and what you've promised. Lord, we need you to remind us. Because we do know these things. And we want to live in light of them. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider these, that it would well up out of our mouths even as we close in that expression of adoration and that it would show up in our lives this week. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.